All right. Uh, good morning again uh, to those of you who are in the house and those of you who are on live stream with us this morning. Uh, good to be together. We are uh, going to be looking at the second chapter of the Gospel of Matthew this morning in a few minutes. Uh, our history was uh, a number of months ago we started uh, in on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, with the, which is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, that big block of Jesus' well-known teachings. Uh, during the season of Advent, those four weeks before Christmas, we uh, stepped aside from that, set the Sermon on the Mount aside for a few weeks while we focused on uh, things that happened in preparation for in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' Advent or Jesus' coming, his arrival. So spent several uh, weeks on chapter one of Matthew's Gospel looking at a variety of different things. Uh, on Christmas, we, talked, uh, we looked at John's Gospel and Christmas through uh, the Gospel writer John's eyes. Then last Sunday, John Garcia led us through uh, chapter two of the Gospel of Matthew uh, and focused primarily on the Magi, uh, in that chapter. This morning, we're going to go back to chapter two and uh, look at a little bit different focus there this morning, uh, specifically about leadership. Uh, but before we do that, I have a couple of questions for you. And uh, so we're going to put those on the screen. The questions are this, uh, and I want to ask you to think about them and respond uh, to someone else nearby you, or if you're at home, uh, respond in the chat, maybe, uh, in the YouTube chat. That'd be great. Here are the two questions. Who is one person who has been an important or influential leader in a positive way in your life? Who is one person who has been an important or influential leader in a positive way in your life? Someone God has used for good in your life or maybe good in your community? That's question number one. Second question, what is one thing about that person that has made them important or, influ or influential in your life? Uh, what characteristic, trait, quality, practice, discipline, action, uh, quality did they possess, do they possess, in particular, that has made them or made them an important and influential leader in your life and maybe in your community. So uh, you've got one minute, 30 seconds apiece, turn to someone near you or use the live stream chat if you're at home uh, and answer that question. Who, who is one of those people and why or how have they been important and influential in your life? Ready, set, go. Okay, some of you are still talking. I hate to cut you off if you are. Uh, maybe some of your responses were a parent, a grandparent, uh, an older relative, a teacher, a principal, a coach, a platoon leader, uh, a community organizer, a boss, uh, a team captain. Uh, any other responses? People who met your qualifications? Shout them out real quick. Anyone else? Jeff, well, all right, naming specific people. Uh, a youth leader. Would that be fair to say? A person in the congregation. Any others? A, a spouse. Yeah, beautiful. A boss? A teacher? Yeah. Mentor? Good. All right. Uh, those are all those kind of people, and um, we're going to keep those in mind as we go through the scriptures. Uh, why don't you pray again with me? God, help us as we open your word, uh, specifically Matthew chapter 2 this morning, as we open the gospel uh, according to Matthew. We ask that you would be our teacher, that you would be uh, our leader, that you would be our mentor, that you would be our shepherd, as you are, as you have been, as you promised to be. Teach us, shape us, mold us, conform us 
uh, into the image and likeness of Jesus, your Son, our Lord. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words should stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly and forever forgotten. Amen. All right, now listen closely to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. This is the Word of God. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Various good English translations, instead of disturbed, have troubled or alarmed or frightened. That Greek word can go a lot of different ways. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he, King Herod, had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet Micah has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent, to, sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star uh, that, they, that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gold, with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take this child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and he left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And last Sunday morning, John Garcia's focus from this passage was on those so-called kings. And I say so-called kings, of course, because the scriptures call them magi, not kings. We've sort of made them into kings. The magi who brought gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, we know they weren't kings, but rather stargazers or astrologers or truth seekers, interpreters of dreams. They were wise men and maybe even sorcerers or magicians, magi, priests, or physicians. We're not sure. And Matthew's narrative is heavily focused on them in this chapter. And that's the way we remember them. And that's the way we remember this passage, with most of the focus on the Magi. In contrast, little bandwidth in our memories and our attention in our retelling is given to King Herod, though he is mentioned by name in this passage. We don't have any names except legend for the Magi. 
But Herod, the king, is mentioned nine times by name. It's just easier to ignore him, though, especially around the time of Christmas. Who wants him in the story? The Magi didn't show up on that night that Jesus was born and laid in a manger. They never crossed paths with the shepherds. They should never be in the same scene with the shepherds. The two groups, the shepherds and the Magi, don't belong on the same stage. And yet we include the Magi in nativity scenes all the time. And we could, so by that same logic and reason, also include in the nativity scene, off at a distance, lurking, King Herod. Keeping him off in the distance, of course, but he's a huge part of Matthew's narrative here, as was seen. But we don't really want him here. We don't want him anywhere. The historical Herod the Great was an interesting mixture. He was racially Arab, religiously Jewish, culturally Greek, and politically Roman. He was a complex guy. As a king, he was a puppet of Rome. He belonged, so to speak, to Caesar Augustus. And Herod, this Herod known as Herod the Great, to distinguish him from the other members of his royal family before him and after him, he was an evil man. At various times, he had three of his own sons killed in order to protect what he thought thought in them were a threat to his crown, to his power. Caesar Augustus said only partly in jest, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. Whereas we usually only hear about Herod the Great around Christmas time, it's easy to equate him with, in my mind, the Grinch. The first verses of whose theme song go like this and describe Herod somewhat. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a monster, Mr. Grinch. Your heart's an empty hole. Your brain is full of spiders. You've got garlic in your soul, Mr. Grinch. You're a vile one, Mr. Grinch. You have termites in your smile. You have all the tender sweetness of a seasick crocodile, Mr. Grinch. And while I loved Dr. Seuss as a child, oh, doesn't he hit the nail on the head? Not just with the fictional Mr. Grinch, but also with King Herod. For the prophet Jeremiah, which Matthew notes, the daughters of Rachel, the mothers of Israel, the mothers of children, the mothers of little boys throughout Israel, and now particularly in this generation, would weep at the evil that Herod, King Herod, would carry out against their boys, many people, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, neighbors, children, cousins, friends, strangers, would cry after King Herod's reign of terror, but likely no one, likely no one cried when King Herod eventually died because of who he was, because of how he was, and the ways in which he led, the ways in which he was a leader. Starting back at the top, in verse three, King Herod was always on high alert to possible threats to his leadership. He was always on high alert to threats to his leadership. In verse seven, we see King Herod operating in secret rather than openly, transparently with candor. In verse eight, we see King Herod speaking untruths, lying through his teeth, and in two specific ways or for two different purposes. First, lying about his motives. 
and then misrepresenting his character, making himself more noble, humble, adoring than he really was, which many people still do today, which many of us do sometimes, which most of us may do periodically. And then finally in verses 16 and 19, 13 and 16, King Herod's true modus operandi or intention is revealed suppressing, crushing, killing others. Literally decreeing violence, murder, and death at will with little or no thought, exhibiting an almost subhuman callousness. Once upon a time, a little book titled Leadership Secrets of Attila the Hun made the bestseller list of the New York Times. I don't think a book about Herod the Great's leadership style, even though he was great, so-called, will ever make any bestseller list. His style or his way always or often included a certain paranoia with regard to any possible threat to his leadership. Instead of, in contrast, trusting God, and instead of being willing to not be king, if someone else ought to be king, or if it was better for others, the people, the nations, the region, for someone else to be king. He had a certain paranoia that will never make a top 10 list for leadership traits. He operated in secret rather than openly, transparently. He spoke untruth rather than truth, as the title of a new uh, book on leadership uh, refers to, called Radical Candor. He tried to look good rather than be good. Too many leaders have tried to look good, to seem good, to come off as good, rather than seeking to truly be good. And finally, he advanced evil rather than advancing good, operated out of a heart of hate rather than a heart of love. That was Herod the Great. In contrast, consider Jesus, who admittedly was only a newborn, an infant, or maybe a toddler during the events Matthew records in chapter two of his gospel. Jesus isn't speaking yet. He's not on the stage. He doesn't have a visible role or part yet. Nevertheless, the implicit contrast that Matthew paints for his readers between King Herod and King Jesus, even here, but in his gospel to come is striking. And Matthew fully intends to compare the two. Matthew consistently calls Herod King Herod until significantly the Magi worship Jesus. After which Herod is effectively dethroned and is never again called king. Not this Herod in Matthew's gospel. And in, v and in Jesus, we soon will find a radically different kind of king, a radically different kind of leader. Instead of fearing those who threatened him, Jesus trusted his father, trusting in his father, that his father in heaven had a plan, that his father in heaven was in control, that the one who created all things and held all things in their hands, in his hands, and his good hands would bring to completion that which he willed, that which was good. At Jesus' trial, Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, do you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? To which Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above, given to you by my Father. 
And Jesus operated openly and publicly in front of everyone, no behind-the-scenes deals. He didn't say one thing to the people, to the masses, and then a different thing in private. And Jesus spoke the truth, always the truth. And I think that's part of the reason that we shy away from the Gospels, that people shy away from Jesus. He always spoke the truth, always in love, but often not the truth that we wanted to hear, that people want to hear, that's easy to hear, especially when it's about us or the things that we love or the world as we want it to be. And Jesus didn't seem to worry very much about what people thought of him personally, only that his Father in heaven would be glorified. He had this healthy detachment from people's ideas and people's thinking about him. Unlike leaders today, or many other leaders, or King Herod, who would only be satisfied with people calling him the great one. And Jesus, rather than using people as Herod did, blessed people and empowered people and brought meaning and purpose to their lives. Rather than getting from, Jesus gave to people. And in all things, Jesus loved. Whereas Herod exemplified callousness, Jesus exemplified and embodied compassion. But maybe what was most unique about Jesus and what was what he did with power. Power is a very delicate thing. Read Dallas Willard, The Spirit of the Disciplines. Read what he says about money, sex, and power. Maybe what most distinguished Jesus from Herod, one king from another, was what Jesus did with power. King Herod clung to power. King Herod and other leaders of his day and our day have clung to power, defended their power, shown off their power, wielded their power. Think about our world's leaders today. But not so with Jesus. Imagine a person with unlimited power, unchecked power, limitless power. That usually doesn't go well in human history. It hasn't. It doesn't go well in our world today. Look at the leaders in your life and on planet Earth today who have unlimited, unchecked power and how things are going under their rule and for those affected by their rule. Think about the autocracies in the world. Think about where corruption thrives and who is in power and how they were in power. The 19th century English historian Lord Acton, in a letter to Bishop Mandel Creighton, and writing about how historians should judge the abuse of power by past rulers and especially past popes, wrote these famous, now famous words, power tends to corrupt, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power tends to corrupt, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And then there was Jesus, who possessed within himself absolute power, the power of the divine, the power of eternity, power over creation, power over every living being, power to heal, power to do whatever he pleased. And what did he do with it? When in the wilderness before his public ministry, fasting and being tempted by the devil, Jesus refused to exercise his power for his own comfort, his own pleasure. 
his own glory or advancement, but instead responded to the devil by quoting Deuteronomy, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. With his power, Jesus healed others. With his power, Jesus cast out tormenting demons and others. With his power, Jesus encouraged. With his power, he offered mercy. With his power, he offered hope. Herod acted with desperation to protect his power, which he exercised for his own glory. Jesus was different in every way. The Apostle Paul described Jesus in his letter to the Philippians this way. Jesus, who was in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should vow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That was Jesus. And as such an attitude, Jesus called his apprentices along the way. In the words of Jesus to his disciples, those to whom he would hand off his public ministry. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. They knew, they'd seen, they'd watched, they'd lived under Herod. Their parents had lived under King Herod. You know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them, Jesus says, and their high officials exercise authority, power over them. Not so with you is emphatic in Jesus' statement. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite reference to himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Herod wanted to be great, but not in the way that Jesus right here describes greatness. Herod wanted everyone to be his slaves, but Jesus calls those who will follow him, and especially those in leadership, to be like servants, to be slaves to all, to be servants. John the Baptist, who came before Jesus, got it, saying in John chapter 3, he must become greater, I must become less. In his little book titled, In the Name of Jesus, Henry Nouwen wrote, the way of the Christian leader is not the way of upward mobility with which we are all so familiar, the world's way. The way of the Christian leader is not the way of upward mobility in which our world has invested so much, but the way of downward mobility, ending on the cross. In the words of Robert Greenleaf in his book titled Servant Leadership, the servant leader is servant first. It begins with a natural feeling that one wants to serve, to serve first, as opposed to wanting power, influence, fame, or wealth. Good leaders must first become good servants. In a few minutes after we celebrate communion together, I'm going to invite up to the platform three people, three leaders, three people 
from our congregation who this morning will be ordained and installed. Those who have been, are being installed have been ordained previously. And this message is especially and particularly for them. They having been called by God and this congregation having previously affirmed that call of God, from God, by God, for them to serve as leaders among us and for us and over us and for us. For God's kingdom and for God's glory. To Jesus-esque leadership, they have been called. Not to rule or to lead like King Herod or his like, but to lead and to rule like Jesus. To servant leadership, they have been called. To leadership in the way not of Herod, but of Jesus. To a kind of greatness that descends rather than ascends, that finds its fulfillment and its abundance at the bottom looking up rather than at the top looking down. And this way is relevant and applicable not only to those who are leaders in the church, but leaders everywhere, to those of you who have leadership roles in your school, in your workplace, in your community, any place. And in reality, and in another sense, all of us are called, whether we're ordained or not, whether we have a position or title or not, to such a disposition, to such a way of not only leading but being, imitating and following in the steps not of King Herod or the world like him, but Jesus who operated not out of fear but out of faith, not out of hate but out of love, not out of seeking power but of exercising power for others. May this be our way as it was the way of our Lord. May we be continually shaped in our leading and our being and our loving. In this way, for God's glory and the scripture's promise for our joy. Let's pray. Together, God, we... Uh, are soberly reminded that there's maybe a little bit of Herod in every one of us. Wanting power for our own purposes. Seeking prominence or privilege or attention. Wanting things our way, wanting the world to revolve around us. Wanting things to go the way we want them to go. Forgive us, save us, heal us. Heal our twisted and sometimes contorted wants and desires in our relationship with you, in our relationship with others, in our place in the world. Have mercy upon us. When we operate out of fear rather than out of love, help us. When we operate out of fear rather than faith or hate out of, rather than love, form your son within us. He's more than just one who hung on a cross in our place, though that he certainly did. 
but also one who went before us exhibiting, embodying, and living your kingdom of love and grace where you put him. And may you do that in us where you have placed us. Forgive us, heal us, save us. We ask with hope and with confidence and gratitude. In the name of Jesus, amen.